Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the Christmas-themed episode of the first series of Harry Enfield's television programme was broadcast on 13th of December 1990. Now that's festive. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer and broadcaster Ben Baker. Ben, what you up to? Where can we find it? I'm currently doing the Christmas twist. It's the dance sensation of the season. <laughs> <laughs> I am I've just published a new book I've done books about Christmas TV before and I decided initially oh I'm just gonna do a best of and stick out on a a sort of a more general market because I I can get a bit niche sometimes as this conversation will probably prove but as I got into it I started seeing all these connections between various like genres and people and stuff like that you know there's a story in there about how Christmas TV develops from the 60s through to like the 2000s and I decided to sort of take a load of stuff that I've written before and rework them in kind of narratives i suppose there's stuff about sort of kids tv dramas like the box of delights and ghost in the water bells of astrocote and stuff like that but there's also stuff like why is noel edmonds so associated with christmas and there's a whole chapter about lenny henry which no one ever talks about it's like he was on christmas tv almost every year for about 20 years so i've tried to yeah i've basically it's called ben baker's christmas box it's out now you can get it from lulu and on kindle and i'm doing a direct version as well which people can buy but yeah uh, i thought who would like me to talk at them (laughs) about (laughs) christmas tv from the past and here i am you see a lot of things for example the first christmas film is 1960 there's not a film on like a proper big christmas night film on before 1960 and that's the 1937 version of the prisoner of zender and there was such outrage about that because at the time obviously the idea of showing films not at the cinema like giving them away for free was outrage and a couple of years later, David O. Selznick, the producer, a lot of his films were signed up for TV and cinema chains refused to show anything he'd produced for a long time because it was just like it was taking food out of their mouths. It is interesting to sort of see the sort of genesis of like then films go on, obviously, and they become big business sort of, sort of late 70s, 80s. It's like who's got the biggest film is a huge part of Christmas. And then it dies off again because satellite TV and sort of video shops and everything. You've seen them all and now we're in a place i think with like you know there'll be a a pixar on at 10 past three on christmas day and likewise you know the kids will have seen it about 15 times by that point so yeah it's interesting definitely to trace those well you have reminded me my favorite christmas film fact ever which was that on christmas eve 1988 bbc one showed jagged edge the 1985 (laughs) thriller with jeff Bridges and glenn close and there were enormous amounts of complaints about that but for your first choice got something a little more wholesome that i'm sure nobody complained about and if this man isn't the true meaning of christmas i don't know who is yeah it's gonna look even nice when everybody gets here it's being fixed up by some of center's temple sure i know like the l no little brother they're called stage hands hey jim hey louis hi everybody do people exchange a lot of different gifts at, at this party no, they all exchange the same kind of presents. Friendship, and it's the best gift in the world. Plus, it's free. You see, Christmas is more than just another day on the calendar. It's also a state of mind. Merry Christmas means different things to different people. What does it mean to you? Well, Billy, you see, when I was little like you, I grew up on welfare, and it was rough. We was poor financially. But we was rich spiritually. And we couldn't afford a lot of material things in life. 
or you concentrate on the more important things. Like what? Like what? If you wake up Christmas morning and find your mother and father alive and healthy, Merry Christmas. And presents doesn't matter? No, not really. It all depends. Christmas without presents, it ain't that bad. But Christmas without love, that's bad. Christmas without friendship, that's bad. Christmas without hope, that's bad. But Christmas without sharing, that's real bad. Okay, that was very evidently Mr. T talking about something seasonal and sentimental. So, Ben, why was he doing that? This is a programme called Mr. T's Christmas Dream. Actually, it was called Mr. T and Emmanuel Lewis in A Christmas Dream when it was first broadcast in America on NBC. But no one knows who Emmanuel Lewis is here. He was in a sitcom called... Was he TV's Webster? He was TV's Webster, which is where an orphan boy goes to live with rich white parents, which is definitely nothing like different strokes at all. No, sir, not never. It's this bizarre hour special from the time he was still in the A-team in which Mr. T's a Salvation Army Santa. <laughs> you know, that looks perfectly natural. You can see it in your head already, can't you, listeners? You can see Mr. T dressed as Santa and how ridiculous that is. <laughs> he basically meets Emmanuel Lewis, who's a 13-year-old boy, and he's very grumpy. He stopped believing in Christmas. So Mr. T decides to take him around New York, basically, to show him the true spirit of Christmas. As you know, we've both been to New York, and it is an absolutely wonderful place so it's a very Christmassy thing but it's also batshit insane <laughs> like he takes him to FAO Schwartz which is one of the big toy stores and it's just basically five minutes of these 1984 latest toy ranges are good aren't they Emmanuel Lewis and then for some reason David Copperfield appears sadly not the one from liftoff with Copperfield does he appear Co- by magic he appears by creepy bastard <laughs> speaking of which do you know there's a puppet act Willie Tyler and Lester I don't know this, but I don't like the sound of it one uh, Yeah, bit. Th- there and there as well. It's very freaky. You know those wooden puppets that are very realistic looking and have like movable eyes and stuff? Yeah, that's troubling. It's a, it's just this hour of trying to cheer this kid up basically so they've got a Rockefeller Centre and stuff like that. And you know, it's beautiful. New York looks amazing. And then it just like, the kid goes, oh, I'm happy now. And then there's like this final scene <laughs> with a big Christmas party where Mr. T sort of sits down and he starts telling the story of baby Jesus's birth but he doesn't because I've got it here I've got some of the script here he says at one point theologians scholars even the prophets not one of them could tell us if that baby smiled we should help somebody that needs help because the blessed of us must try to save the less of us and then and only then will we know that we have made that baby smile (laughs) do you think he had some control over the script there is that tradition in America that we've never really had here of Christmas specials with a celebrity with a meaning. I mean, two examples yeah. I can think of at the top of my head. Favourite of both of ours, Christmas on Division Street from 1991, which is Fred Savage from the Wonder Years, actually playing a character where basically he goes to rescue the homeless and stop street violence on the corners. Yeah. And the other one, which I believe I made you watch, was a 1979 animated revival, Little Rascals, which oh, God, I saw. Yeah. 
or I think ITV showed it either that year or the year after. Where it's the most tedious thing. About, it's even more boring than the original Little Rascals films. It is. And it's one of them thinks he's getting a train set and he doesn't. And that's it. Uh, yeah, and also, for some reason, back in the 80s, it's the late 70s and sort of early 80s, there were a lot of things about, hey, you like seeing orphan children, right, kids? Yeah. <laughs> and sort of like historically themed stuff like that. Obviously, like the Little Rascals is, I think, the animated version is still set in the 30s. And not only is it, obviously, if people don't know the Little Rascals, it's one of those things that seem to be in American culture because they have syndicated telly there and so they needed cheap film packages, which is why the Three Stooges are an institution there because, you know, they could just bag them out constantly on a loop. And I think it's one of those kind of things, isn't it? The kind of like capers that would have been on. I imagine Talking Pictures TV could find some and put them on a Saturday morning. It would fit with all the stuff they show. Dick Tracy and what's it? The some creeping monster or whatever. <laughs> I love the idea of these. As I said normally these specials like you get like a pop star or something like that. There's like the John Denver and the Muppets, for example. Uh Julie Andrews did a few. You know, those kind of like I'm just gonna sing some songs that I like, go to some nice places, have a few guests on. So this one does try and make it like a film, but you know, it's clear like, right, Mr. T's got three days in between shooting episodes of the A team. Let's just do stuff. And I think barely coherent is definitely <laughs> the phrase in question when it comes to Mr. T's Christmas dream. And you know what? Never once mentions going on a plane. Well, I've actually got a Mr. T Christmas story. But before <laughs> I get to that, it is easy to forget how iconic he was around then. The other thing is that he'd only been famous for a very short amount of time. Mm. Didn't Sylvester Stallone spot him just in the documentary about, I don't know, it was construction workers or something, but he thought, that guy's got raw acting talent. Cast yeah. In Rocky, which I think was 1982. You know, this is 1984. By that time, he does his own cartoon series where, for some reason, he's a gymnastics coach where his gymnastics team solves crimes. Who crime. solves crimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did the, the TR3 car wax adverts, always on TVAM, where he said, You think I'm tough? This is tough. TR3, take it from me, Mr. T. Grr, which has <laughs> never turned up online. I really want that to. But he was everywhere. There were yeah. toys of him. Yeah. There were all kinds of things. And he really was so famous that I can't believe this has been forgotten. In 1991, he was in the huge, massive panto at the Liverpool Empire, you know, which is a sellout for weeks on end. In 91? He was the genie in Aladdin. Bradley Walsh was also in that as wishy-washy, incidentally. <laughs> but I obviously didn't go and see that because I was a bit, you know, yeah, I was yeah. way too old to be going to pantos. But I wasn't too old to be going to see bands in town. Now, I've tried to work out who it was that me and a very good friend of mine, we went to see... I can't remember who it was we went to see, but we went to the KFC, which was where Chicken Bazooka now is for anyone who knows Liverpool. <laughs> was that the band, Chicken said, Bazooka? That's there. Mr. T. And I turned around and it was, Mr. T had just walked from the Empire, <laughs> which, you know, anyone who knows this will know that's a good five-minute walk. He walked from the Empire straight after the show to KFC and was getting KFC, and was talking to everyone like they were just, you know, like they were his mates. It was one of the most bizarre, surreal experiences I've ever had. Sounds amazing. I mean, it's better than my story of Lisa Riley nearly knocking me over in the doorway of Virgin Megastore in 1997. What were you buying? That's the question. I don't know. I was dazed. Was it anything Christmas related? It was whatever our next selection is, if you need a link. <laughs> Obviously. 
Well, I'll use that link because I was going to come up with something that I hadn't quite thought through about how we tried to do specials, but in a different way. But yeah, let's just go straight into it. Here's a clip of somebody from the 80s that you might not recognise as readily. On the land beyond the beach Where the smell of flowers fills the air There's a man beyond your reach There's no trouble that can touch him there He's the ruler of the island Citizens will suffer for his style They go hungry every day Seems to be a case of foul play There's something wrong in paradise Now someone's got to pay the price I'm sorry sir, I can't deny There's something wrong in That was a bit of lesser-known Kid Creole on the Coconuts minor hit, There's Something Wrong in Paradise. Ben, what has this got to do with Christmas? What indeed? Obviously, when I'm writing this book, there's a lot of things that aren't actually festive, but take advantage of the sort of looser schedules that you get at Christmas. And, you know, there's always been that element, I think, of, obviously, you know, there's certainly when it comes to public service broadcasting before, obviously, they threw all that away. It's like you'd get Christmas was where they'd stick a lot of music and musicals and stuff like that that were tick boxes there's something wrong in paradise is a two-hour musical set around the music of kid creole and the coconuts who were absolutely massive obviously at the time but it's about sort of racism on a small island racism perpetrated by a black ruler as well yeah it's a baffling i'm gonna come to that word a lot i think it's a musical but it's done by itv so it's all on really ugly looking video but they're trying to make it look like a 40s musical and there's a lot of i mean the sets are absolutely amazing you know it looks really good and there's obviously huge dance sequences and the cast features pauline black from the selector the three degrees Karen Black, an actual Oscar nominee, and, of course, your favourite, Paul J. Medford, as the character Teenager. But also, the dictator is his dad from EastEnders, Oscar James. (laughs) Yes, it is, yeah. As a production featuring largely people of colour, it it feels pretty revolutionary, because this went out on ITV two or three days before Christmas, so it was a big deal. But it was also on at 10pm, possibly because, you know, it's got sort of a lot of social commentary in it. But you do think, maybe the audience for this were not up at 10pm. <laughs> <laughs> Even on a Saturday night, as it was. Yeah, it, it's honestly, it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen. And I love that it exists, and I wish they'd done this more. Like, whatever band was big at the time said, do you want to do a two-hour Hollywood-style musical? Probably would have got the Stone Roses doing one in 1990. One Love in the Skies, or something. Well, the really strange thing is that it wasn't one of the big blockbusting ITV companies that produced it. It was Granada, who yeah. didn't tend to do big show-busy things. I mean, you know, Granada's programming was always really really good especially the regional stuff but yeah. it tended to be more worthy more wordy more kind of not you know costume drama but in a modern sense you know kind of yeah. gritty maybe and they, they didn't often do things like this no but when they did it was always on videotape for some yes. reason you know you yeah think, it looked uh, like coronation street yeah because there is that obviously it's of the python sketch good lord we're surrounded by film and that was the first time i realized oh yeah you knew as a kid that was something different 
like in the the visual quality on film outside broadcasting for example an inside studio but I, I could never quite work out why because the telly wasn't that big obviously so you kind of you don't know if you're imagining it and so it's really interesting stuff like this existing that really is trying to be like now you couldn't imagine it on videotape I don't think anyone does anything on videotape anyway but there was obviously that period where they didn't know how to treat digital video so it had like a weird smeary effect and yeah it's got quite serious script it does say central theme of sort of like racial unrest and a guerrilla uprising but then it's just like and now here's a funky pop song <laughs> and a big dance number it's, it's an odd thing and I hope people have heard this and gone oh my god that was that thing because you know that's why I love this program it's like it doesn't matter if you've heard of it or not it's the scratching that itch of memory for me I love about this it's like oh yeah I remember that thing well there was quite a tradition around that point I mean I assume it's something that doesn't really go on anymore the last examples can think of things like steps into summer and so on but were because it was never the big acts that did this you never got you know Prince's Boxing Day Country Christmas Spectacular or anything like that but it was <laughs> kind of whatever up and coming bands were up for it it was mainly more the BBC than ITV, but they would do a programme where it was clear they just said, what do you want to do on this? They tended to be all around Christmas as well. The ones that stand out for me in my memory, all BBC ones, things like, I don't know how I got to see this at the time, but XTC at the Manor, which I think is about them recording Black Sea at the Manor Studios. Hmm. You know, it's basically just them being XTC, being funny while recording. There's a bit about they break a plate, don't they, to get the right sound at the start of Towers of London. And yeah. There was London Nil Hall 4, which is a House Martins one when they barely got into the charts so it kind of followed them round Hull again being funny most of the time they do kind of a knees up version of Think for a Minute in a pub I don't think I've seen that I'd like to see that the one I really loved and I would love to see again was Musical Youth Musical Roots where basically the idea was just you know these are South London kids doing reggae but they're Jamaican descendants why don't we take them to Jamaica and see what they make of it yeah. and it was like fascinating they meet all you know actual reggae legends like Eka Mouse who treat them with respect and credibility that they weren't getting at home you know because they were treated as a bit of a joke at me we've ever heard the peel session that they did that no. is not joke music but also they've made to try things like curried goat and so on and they're not happy and one of them i think watches a jamaican horror film in the cinema and is really not best pleased about it okay i remember loving that because i again it's hard to explain to people now if you were you know roughly the same age as them when they were around it felt like a victory seeing them on top of the pops mm. you know doing proper music not singing there's no one quite like grandma or whatever <laughs> and i think they've been dealt an unfair hand by history but obviously musical youth aren't the real meaning of christmas no pop stars i suppose because again this is the era of videos becoming a thing that's another thing i've done in the book it's kind of tracing pop music at christmas and again we go from just like top of the pops and stuff and then whistle test starts doing compilations and then by the video era you've got basically every channel doing a uh, top pop videos of this year i TV do a few on Christmas Day. Unfortunately, one of them with Jim Davidson. Didn't French and Saunders do one of them? They did the fake memory of that. Great British Pop Machine, which I think is 88. That's brilliant. That's really, really funny. It's them sort of spoofing. By that point, you had a lot of youth styles, you know, your Network 7 kind of thing. They're parodying edgy kind of teen presenting, but that's a brilliant compilation, even if the songs are not, not the best. It's 
yeah, but if, yeah, I think for a certain time, the idea that ITV would make this and broadcast it nationwide is, it doesn't feel real. I am very much, the thing about writing books about old stuff is, I think a lot of people think I'm going to be a rose tinted glasses, everything was better than, pop music was better than when I was 15 and stuff like that. And it's like, no, I'm not. I think there's a lot of good stuff around now. You know, telly is not what it was. Like things don't start at 6.52pm anymore. Things don't go wrong as much but it's still fascinating i like looking back at television still and going like oh that's an interesting thing that happened but like i said i don't think i want a two-hour rifles brain for band that are currently popular you know the the sausage roll bloke who did the like the christmas number ones can you imagine <laughs> if they gave him i'm amazed they haven't actually given him like a variety spectacular <laughs> Well, it is an interesting point that you make about the past wasn't necessarily better because I think one thing people don't factor in is sometimes it was just literally what they could do at the time because mm. my main overriding feeling watching There's Something Wrong in Paradise was there's a direct line between that and sort of, you know, you mentioned Whistle Test then, but there's sort of arty shows of pop music mm. and you started to get late at night on BBC Two in the late 60s where they basically put somebody like, I mean, there's a show called Colour Me Pop where there's yeah. not much of it left now, but people like the Small Faces and so on and the Kinks and the Bonzo Dog Doodle Bomb where they say yeah. do X number of your songs and then do something between them because mm. you know obviously they could only film a certain number of songs in the studio per whatever the allotted time was and then you got things like I mean there's a long lost edition of that with the Straubs where basically they got their mate some bloke nobody's heard of called David Bowie in to do a mime alright to one of their songs being played in off the record but it is kind of a descendant of that it's that you know what what can we do with what's available to us? And now more stuff's available to people, which is the only reason television isn't like how you remember yeah. it being. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It's people aren't looking to telly to give them music anymore. Definitely. Again, another thing that has up traced throughout the book is like the whistle test ends. It goes, and then, then you've got like the chart show and that ends, and then that's replaced by CD UK and that ends. And now, really, you've got later with Jules Holland, which is tedious <laughs> but it's there you know it does what it needs and i suppose you've got like 500 best songs from 1981 that aren't rap rapping or whatever you know. <laughs> <laughs> well not quite anyone you know what i mean the channel five's documentaries about you know the top 25 songs of all time ever i'm feeling <laughs> a bit seen here <laughs> no, i love all that but again that's really all there is everything seems to be about history and not now with pop music television i think well just before we move on to your next choice there's something that i'm gonna see if you can guess what i'm going to mention in terms of something that was pop music now at the time on christmas day can you think what i'm thinking off. I immediately thought of when ITV put a Robson and Jerome special on Christmas Day. Yes, that's what I was looking for. Was it really? To. No, I have no idea. No, 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 it might be the same year, but when Channel 4 at something like 7 in the morning on Christmas Day showed a short showtime. showtime by Blur, yes. It was about half 10 Christmas Day, Blur Showtime. I remember sat and watched that absolutely enthralled. In fact, that was Christmas Day 1995, which later on that day, Another programme was broadcast with a musical theme. Well, thank you for doing the link for I think I figured I might as well. I'll just put the clip in and then we'll move on. Happy Christmas, everyone. Welcome to God in the House, Channel 4's Christian Rave service. Say the word rave and most people think of a bunch of kids jumping around all night in a club around about 1989. But now people are raving in churches, combining house music and visuals to create a new form of worship. Today we'll be looking at three very different services 
from all across the country. Okay, that was who you thought it was. And as you've already liked and subscribed his podcast, please like and subscribe to look some familiar. But that was Adam Buxton. Really, before Adam and Joe existed, Ben, what was he doing? He was hosting a programme called God in the House. Although it's actually just listed in Radio Times as Christian Rave Special. No, that's that's... Yahoo Serious Festival. I mean, it is very much three words plucked (laughs) from the sky. But this was a documentary that was on at dinner time. I think it was on at the same time, actually, as the Top of the Pops Christmas Special, which in 1995, I don't know if you remember, was the Jack D and Bjork hosted one. (laughs) It's really (laughs) baffling. Basically, yeah, it's Adam Buxton, because it's produced by the people at World of Wonder, who did take over tv which had just i think it started in 95 didn't it i think it was only just before this was on it started, yeah it wouldn't yeah. have been very if people don't remember take over tv it was kind of this hey let's put on the show right here send in your home video like daft films and stuff like that and we'll put them together and obviously most of them were absolute garbage so when they found adam buxton who you know was funny and could write and produce stuff very well they basically got him in to make <laughs> about half of it i would say and he's, he hosts a few of the first series and then all of the second one and obviously the second one is where he brings in his mate Joe a lot to do the links. He's not yet in a category which is why when he pops up here in a very nice waistcoat I have to say I was going to say do you know what he looks like you know that we've got to the 1991 relaunch at Top of the Pops yes. with the generic presenters on it he looks like no disrespecting but one of them yeah he does like, he does very much looks like that kind of like shiny waistcoat and very slick back hair but he hosts this documentary it's kind of it's not as because you assume, oh, Adam Buxton's presenting this thing about Christian raves, that's going to be a piss take. And the YouTube upload of this that I've seen does have in brackets, this must be a spoof, question mark. I don't think it is, but it fascinates with the era of bringing religion and music together. It's a really good way of selling religion, but it really rubs people up the wrong way. For example, is that, uh, what that band called? Delir- Do you remember Delirious? They had loads of top 20 hits, but obviously no press because they were a Christian band. Well, there was also around the same time as this. Do you remember the big holy one on Radio 1? The Simon Mayo. Simon Mayo magazine thing. show where, you know, it wasn't bad for what it was and they got kind of like, you know, Christian comedians on and so on. And it's where that session with Elastica doing Christmas carols comes from. Oh, is it? Oh, all for Gloria. There was quite a thing around that time of trying to do kind of a crossover between religion and pop music. Hmm. Not in the patronising naff way. They'd be no. Previously, just like, you know, hey, I like all this stuff. I also like God a bit, if that's all right. Yeah, that's what this show is, basically. It's like there's three different kinds of, like, events that are based around sort of music for young people. The first one's the Worldwide Message Tribe, and they're playing like this. It is a rave, effectively. It all sounds very much like contemporary dance of the time, you know, breakbeats and repetitive lyrics and all that sort of thing. There's just, you know, a bit of Jesus in there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it is. And then there's a little bit of a talk, you know, people come up and talk and stuff like that. And you should want to take the piss out of it but you can't you can sort of go well yeah it's absolutely packed there's like i think there's about 500 people there apparently they released records they had a minor hit apparently in america on the billboard dance chart as well it's not because you think christian music you think hey guys uh let's have a, a bit of a jam do you like the music of crowded house you know <laughs> kind of like hip vicar sort of thing but it's not it's it's very contemporary buxton's only a minor sort of thing like he does like a voiceover and little interviews sort of backstage it's one of them says oh we're, we're not a cult people think we're a cult we're not a cult <laughs> and you can imagine like buxton would have a field day with it now but he's just he's pretty respectful i think he's like quite sort of like oh yeah 
No, okay. Yeah, fair enough. I feel there's a give them enough rope aspect to it a little bit, you know, because there's one bit where, like, some teens go up to read poetry and stuff like that. And, you know, you can take it both ways. You can take it as earnest or you can take it as, oh, my God, what is this? Well, could it have been inspired by the fact that his childhood friend, Louis Theroux, had just made a name for himself doing the inserts on Michael Moore's TV Nation? Yeah, that's, TV that's mayhem. I'd love to see Michael Moore's TV <laughs> Mayhem. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a good point. Actually, if this was a Louis Theroux thing, I think it would have a very similar... He'd be in it more, I think, but it would have a very similar style, definitely. This one's a bit more stand back and just watch. There's another one which is in a proper nightclub. Like, the first one's in a church, the second one's in a nightclub, and it's like sort of a hip-hop sort of thing, and there's a bit where, like, the leader of it gets all of everyone to sit round him in a semicircle, cross-legged, which feels a little less hip. And also, if you've ever been to a nightclub, don't sit down, ever. <laughs> the things that are going to be on that floor... <laughs> I was fascinated to know, like, I've got to know, is that nightclub still around? And yeah, apparently, hideous gun violence and and closed down. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think it's part of that. But if anyone was going to take the piss out of the music in it, I would just like to remind them that this was the era of I Like to Move It, Move It by Real to Real featuring Hot <laughs> Stuntman, yeah. later used by New Labour as their campaign anthem, of course. But the interesting thing about this is that it's fascinating that it's been completely forgotten. I mean, it's not even mentioned in the Adam and Joe story, which has got, you know, camcorder footage of them walking down the street making jokes. Mm. But you do get that thing where people are in a similar bracket to Adam Buxton in some ways. I have that interesting bit early on in the career where nobody has quite figured out what they are yeah. or what they do yet. I mean, I can think of, you know, similarly quirky documentaries made early on by Jonathan Ross, mm. Alexis Sale, Mark Radcliffe, people like that. You get things like somebody who's going to come back into this, Neil Morrissey. Not quite the same <laughs> thing, but in the 80s, you're ahead of me here. He was the lead in a horror film made by the people who made Boone, you know, the actual production team and the writer and so on and all the cast called I Bought a Vampire <laughs> a Motorcycle. motorcycle. Yeah. And I remember years later, I saw him on Richard and Judy, and they kind of brought it up in a kind of, you know, like a sneery. You must be embarrassed way, about that. It was on the yeah. CV. But he, his face lit up, and it was like, that was a work of genius. I love doing that. I'm so proud of it. And I imagine, I would hope Adam Buxton is really fond of this, but I'd just forgotten about it when they did the Adam and Joe story. Yeah, I hope so, definitely. Because, as I said, I feel it stands back. I think it's respectful, but obviously there is a little bit of a nudge. This is weird, isn't it? And it is a bit weird but if you're gonna do it do it on christmas day at half 12 you know it's like because this wasn't a late you'd assume it would be a late night sort yeah. of like 11 30 friday night kind of thing but this is on christmas day half 12 between as a blur's showtime and you know your general operas and old films and stuff that channel 4 used to show when it had worth they were pretty good with that sort of thing channel 4 i think this is one of the most interesting i know people obviously rave about the 80s but i think the sort of so up to about 97 they really were on fire Channel 4. They were really good. Like, the commissioning. Fascinating stuff. The Michael Jackson era, I think, probably. Not the term. Not that Michael Jackson, no. But yeah, it's like, they're kind of making stuff like this. And there's another thing, actually, they made a couple of years earlier called To Hell With The Devil, which went out on Christmas Eve, 1989. And it's about Striper, who are in Beavis and Butthead. They all have T-shirts on. And so, obviously, there's ACDC Metallica. But Stuart, (laughs) the wuss character, 
character has Striper on his shirt. That's how they're kind of seen, basically. That kind of says more than I could possibly describe. Again, it's another one which is kind of just following this. It's a documentary to follow this Christian metal quartet around. I mean, there is a quote which says, there's not a Christian B-flat or a secular B-flat. There's just a B-flat. And you kind of go, yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's funny from a secular perspective, but it is actually like, yeah, no, that that's fair enough, you know. Well, I have always wondered if this was shortly before there was the Spinal Tap comeback. I am obsessed with the interviews they did around them in character that being completely forgotten, where they filled in all this detail, like David managed a glam metal band called Lame, but people kept missing the accent off, and <laughs> Nigel went to Switzerland to learn traditional Swiss rhythms and <laughs> work with traditional Swiss musicians. <laughs> but then Paul Simon released Graceland, so that was that. But Derek joined a Christian rock band called Lamb's Blood, who split up. Not very Christian. And I've always yes. thought that must have been inspired by Striper, who, I'll be fair to them, they seem like decent men. They're a competent band. They're not a brilliant band. They remind me of, if anyone's seen Anvil, the documentary about the heavy metal band that never quite mm. made it, you know, that toured with Metallica and people like that, where nobody seems to say they were a brilliant band. The measure is kind of like Lemmy says, they were a good band, they got my vote. You know, so good rather than you can see why Striper never quite conquered the international album charts, but there's nothing wrong with what they do at all. No, this documentary is from an era of when glam metal was obviously massive, as we've still seeing it, sort of, when we're recording this, we're in the 1991 Top of the Pops repeats, and it's still there, you know, you're still getting, like, Poison and Motley Crue and Skid Row turning up. You know, it seemed to last a lot longer than people remember, and at least you kind of go, you know, Motley Crue looked amazing, but they were awful, (laughs) so at least Striper were kind of like they looked yeah, fine and they were probably awful but they brought a lot of comfort to people I guess I mean there is a bit in the documentary where a recently bereaved mother talks about you know how much comfort she gets from them and stuff like that it's hard to go because uh, yeah. we come from an era where it was basically we remember the god slot very very vividly when did that stop being a thing 90s 92 93 ish this is actually a bit more of an interesting take i suppose on the whole thing and they're still going <laughs> amazingly they had an album last year which charted in america you know they've still clearly got a fan base and what have you the thing kind of is that you know you might think on face value it's a ridiculous idea given heavy metal is for a long time it's not been associated with you know black man magic imagery mm. and so on but it was for quite a long time and yeah. you know there's the avarice and excess and the womanizing and allusions to drugs and so on in the lyrics and the idea yeah. that somebody would say well we're going to be christians and talk about how great jesus is sounds a bit naff except when you think at the same time you know you had the rise of the very militant rap outfit mm. ice tea nwa and so on and in reaction to that you get arrested development de la soul yeah. a tribe called quest doing the whole daisy age afrocentrism thing you know which is kind of yeah we've got the same problems but maybe there's a different answer maybe we look to the peaceful past for a peaceful solution no but maybe if public enemy had picked them instead of anthrax who knows what could have been but (laughs) it it reminds me of straight edge basically that kind of punk you know no drink drugs scene you know and that's kind of that's not about religion necessarily if it is it's not necessarily christianity but it definitely feels like there is parallel there could imagine when people got bored of this they kind of went to doing that like because they needed some people like structure they like to have a code of living i guess you do get that a lot and as i say in england we don't have that we have cliff you know you think christian music you think cliff straight away don't you and you think harry seacomb on the top of a mountain yes we can't <laughs> with mentioning the god slot on christmas without mentioning highway which if anyone 
has been listening to the absolutely brilliant Goon Pod. Highway comes in for a lot of stick, which is basically Harry Seacombe wandering, <laughs> literally wandering around Britain, singing hymns and like talking to blacksmiths and so on about yeah. the spiritual influence in their life. I loved it when I was a kid because, you know, I was laughing at it. It was like surrealist art. And there's a famous thing about when it started in 1983, Spike Milligan had been living abroad and he came back and he turned it on. He saw Harry Seacombe singing in the grassy bit in the middle of a dual carriageway. And he actually thought it was a comedy. He was having hysterics <laughs> and rolling off and thinking, how's Harry getting away with this? And yeah. went, but, but when yeah. you think of what else is on on the Sunday, if there was kid stuff, it was things like Seal Morning with Holly Erd, you know, that kind of thing. There were all political, like hardcore religious programmes and things like that. And in the middle, you've got this bit of ridiculousness. And I loved it for that reason. Certainly compared to Songs of Prayers, yeah, it was, it was watchable in comparison. But yeah, as you say, when I was a kid, that was my first experience of Harry Seacombe. So when I found out he did all this other stuff, I'm like, <laughs> what? It genuinely made no sense to me at all. I don't know if you get that kind of polymath anymore when it comes to television. Like, you get your niche and you stick in it. It's earnest. Highway was earnest. And that snared at a bit. I don't think we do earnest anymore. I think television's got very arch. I think it's got very knowing. It likes cheesy, but it likes to know it's being cheesy. I don't want to say postmodern because that implies something else. But I was thinking about that because I was thinking about... Do you remember Families at War? Vic and Bob game show, which did not last very long at all in one series. And thinking how that would be a massive hit now. Basically, it was a Vic and Bob take on the generation game, effectively. I mean, the most famous bit is probably... Probably a guy who has to run on a treadmill while Leo Sayers on his back and Leo Sayers singing, you know, When I Need You. It's recognisable, but it's weird. Whereas now, I think telly's more up to that. That's fine. There's not an issue. I say I'm not comparing it, but you look back at stuff like this and I think, yeah, I think telly was just, this is it. This is the thing that it is. There's no ulterior need. Well, I think one benchmark of that is we mentioned the God slot, which is the, there were actually two where they're on the Sunday. There's the morning one and the afternoon one where yeah. the TV stations were required to carry a certain amount of religious programmes. So you got, you know, morning worship, songs of praise, Credo, which is the heavyweight religious documentary thing, which is always about how you retain faith in the face of the troubles. It was it seemed to be that every time. Or Women Priests was the other thing it was always about. And they had that kind of bombastic prog rock Jesus theme tune. <laughs> Highway started in 1983. It was a lighter face of all that, really. And in 1993, when the Godslot was abolished by the IBA, the first thing they got rid of was Highway. Yeah. Which is quite sad to me really but also kind of points towards the way things have gone since I think yeah yeah I suppose again I'm not going to be a everything was better back then kind of person but you know actually I think Highway's greatest legacy is the Victoria Water scene on TV what made my lovely Anorak it's the way it's so well observed the way there's a woman with a spinning wheel in the background who doesn't react until he smiles at her and she <laughs> acknowledges him it, that, it was so spot on it was like the song sounded exactly like something from highway as well and if victoria wood does a sketch about you where it's savage but without taking the piss out of you i think you were doing something right yeah i think it nails it completely okay well we're not moving that far away from the god slot in some ways with the next show we've chosen to highlight and i did say neil morrissey was coming back as well so take it away neil see what i've got for jesus what wow solid Gold. All gold. What have you got? What is it? Frankincense. What? 
Frankincense. Frankincense? Yes. Could you, Chidi, do you want to swap presents? Presents? No, I'll, uh, I'll give you my aircraft carrier or 20 pence. <laughs> pence? You don't speak proper. Okay, that was a clip from the Fleet Street. The, the Fleet Street? What? <laughs> Is this hot metal? No, 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 no. There was no. This was not in Wapping. There was no. No, there was, there was no hot metal Christmas special. Sadly, that was a clip from the Flint Street Nativity. I got it yes. right at last, Ben. Because I'm going to keep laughing. Tell us what it was. It's a really, really very well written. You mentioned Victoria Wood there, and there are very few people I think who are who have that ability to just nail what people say and do and how they act. And Tim Firth is definitely one of those. Obviously, he did Calendar Girls. He did the madness musical kinky boots cruise the gods which was also on at christmas which was absolutely brilliant james corden was in that he's absolutely fantastic in that as well and all quiet on the preston front was his kind of big thing that he'd done although it obviously come from and now in color the radio 4 sketch show and the mary white house experience oh, yes, where yes, he did that song about cinema audiences that i still think of every time i go to the cinema but yeah he's, he's a really funny writer and he wrote this it's basically it's just like backstage of the kids at a primary school getting ready for a nativity and sort of falling out about roles and who's playing what like the fighting over who gets to be Mary and all that sort of thing and there's the scruffy kids who don't have much money and all that and then you do actually get to see the production as well but to make it less having to deal with you know children shouting it's all contemporary comedy actors from well this is from 1999 so it was ITV thing and it's got everyone in it as I say it's got Neil Morris in it Julia Sawala's in it Jane Horrocks John Thompson Dervla Kerwin, Ralph Little, Frank Skinner's in there, Tony Marshall's in there, and people were probably better known as Nelson from Life on Mars. I should just mention Jason Hughes from This Life playing mm. a Warren, given that he just played Warren very iconically in This Life. Yeah. Is this in-universe? Is, but, it? well, is this, yeah. it's set immediately after Outstanding, Absolutely Outstanding? Yeah, but he's Joseph. He's Joseph, so it's fine. <laughs> If they'd done series three of this life and it was now set in biblical times, it would have been better than this life plus. But it would have been way better than this life plus fucking ten. Yes. God, I hated that. So yeah, it's just a fun, gentle comedy about sort of how, you know, because we all, I assume you were in an activity or you did a lot of school production stuff, didn't you? Yes, yeah. I was actually, I was out with some friends from primary school last night and we were talking about who we all were. We were talking about, I won't name her, but the girl who was always Mary, who mm. <laughs> a lot of the other girls were quite resentful of that. But it was brought up that, let's just get this out of the way, I was a now discredited celebrity <laughs> in the school nativity. Wait. Was it now or then? Or now or then? Uh, Well, I tell Joseph and Mary, as my descendant will say, go by train. (laughs) Tracksuits may have been involved. (laughs) (laughs) So come on, let's hear your embarrassing Uh, uh, equivalent to that, please. I I was Harlequin in a production of Panto Pronto. What, chocolates? Well, effectively that, yeah. I had to have a costume which was, you know, all the little triangles of colour. But, you know, where do you find a Harlequin costume for a (laughs) nine-year-old? In 1989. So my mum covered the only black shirt I had with crepe paper, triangles. And that shirt was my Batman shirt with the Batman logo on because 89 was obviously the summer of Batman being everywhere. And even though I hadn't seen it, I was obsessed with it. And she ruined my favourite shirt to make... I mean, she must have gone through hell making that costume. (laughs) 
as parents do, but you don't think about that at the time, do you? You just think about how uncomfortable you are. But that was a BBC radio music and movement thing. Panto Pronto, as I say. And I still remember, Panto Pronto, come and see the show. You know, it's like, I still remember it. I don't know why. If you were a Harlequin in character, did he then go on to Twitter and reply to some women telling them why they were wrong, but in ye olde language? <laughs> no, <laughs> that I seems was... to be what they all do now. No, but I was much better once Jared Leto left the production. Yeah, I did that. I think ever. I think that's why the Fleet Street Nativity is good, because it's the comedy of recognition. There's kids peeing themselves and kid, you know, someone crying because she'll get done. There's some really beautiful bits in it as well, like Stephen Tomkinson's the narrator, and it gets really upset when his mum turns up with a different guy who's not his dad, basically because his dad's moved out. Mark Addy's in it. Basically, through almost all of it, he's got a box in his head. He's a donkey. <laughs> he's just wearing his school uniform. He's a donkey. But he's sort of outside. He's not enjoying himself. And John Thompson's the innkeeper. And basically, he's the rough kid. And he really loves Mary, who's obviously quite well-to-do. And well, that's never going to happen. And uh, there's a bit where they start talking outside. They're both upset. Because <laughs> Mark had his donkeys. I believe the phrase is, he, he peed his leg. That reminds me of one of my favourite memories of school nativities is overhearing some adults talking and saying, why did the caretaker have to go onto the stage halfway through? And the reply was, one of the mice was sick. You know, there's a kid being a mouse. Who yeah, yeah, threw up. yeah. But I got in so much trouble for laughing at that. No, fairly. Fairly. So yeah, that Mark Addy's talking about his grandma dying, but it's just again, it's, it's really sweet. But there's this brilliant line where it says, "My mum said she were old, but I looked inside a cardigan and she was only thirty-eight to forty. <laughs> <laughs> that, that line is beautiful. They sort of use giant sets and high camera angles, so you you feel that the kids. And then in the last section of it, the last act, you actually see the parents, and it's the same actors as their parents. It's really, really well done, and I think everyone would see it. And ITV, I think, only shows it once it's a weird one it doesn't seem to have it should be one of those things which is on every year like bernard and the genie you know one of those really really well produced things that for some reason just filtered away could it be to do with the fact it was produced by yorkshire tv so for the benefit of about three people listening i'm sure neil morrissey was very excited by the identity at the start but could it be that they didn't exist for that long after that did they they were kind of subsumed by so, yeah i mean they still ITV, exist PLC. but yeah it's not as much of a thing as it was obviously it's probably also a casualty of it was on just before Christmas 1999 and basically that week was just Millennium! Everything! Everything Millennium! So a lot of things have disappeared under the curtains really but it's a shame. So I'm glad it's there's a lot of regional productions of it I understand. I think he actually based it along actual anecdotes from real teachers and stuff like that. So it's got this reality to it and it's, I think you could probably I don't think there's anyone disgraced in it to be fair. I think you could probably get away with showing it now. It came out on DVD I think but it's one of those shows very much like you remember obviously for quite a few years Simon Nye wrote a pantomime for ITV like they brought back the pantomime and for some reason they were on ITV too a lot and then possible to find anymore or they were for quite a long time it's weird how things that are so in the culture just stop and what a shame it hasn't enjoyed the longevity of Christmas lights with Robson Cream (laughs) I suppose you think of Nativity now, you think of those bloody films of Mark Wooden. This is so much better than them. Similar kind of theme, but yeah. I think if this had been a film, it would have been one of those that comes out every year. But because it's TV, it's lesser for some reason. Okay, well, your next choice. I'm not sure why this hasn't recurred every year, right? <laughs> you know what it is. <laughs> I would love this to be on every year, especially now the host's dead. Yeah. <laughs> 
I can't talk anymore. Here's the theme music. <laughs> Okay, yes, that was the bullseye theme with somebody <laughs> shaking a sleigh bell over it. Ben, just rescue me from this right. link, please. So sometimes with this show, I do see you get a lot of comments going, well, I've heard of that, so it's not obscure. And it's like, shut up, obviously, because it's not about that. And so, yeah, everyone knows bullseye. Everyone knows the jokes about bullseye, etc. So you know what it looks like in advance. But the 1991 decided to add a Dickensian theme. <laughs> So suddenly, everyone is not only dressed in sort of like full, you know, Christmas Carol kind of gear. They're in character. <laughs> Jim Bowen isn't, but he is. He's kind of Ebenezer Scrooge and he's sort of shouting at the audience. And then it's a celebrity one because it's Christmas. And as it's 1990, Bobby Davro's there. <laughs> he's Bob Cratchit. Bella Emberg's his wife. And Paul Shane. Paul <laughs> Shane is Tiny Tim. <laughs> I've always loved about Paul Shane the fact that, you know, with most other people, the problem is that they get really famous through a fluke and then, you know, they're defined by one character, but they want to do more. But Paul Shane over the years seems to retreat more and more into his Paul Shane. Yeah, no, he's That's quite basically what he does in this is Paul Shane turned up to 10. Well, it is, but because they're sort of in character, they do say who they are, obviously, but they, are, they do come out as Bob Cratchit, etc. The others kind of drop it very quickly, but Paul Shane sticks with <laughs> yeah. it for far too long. And you know that sketch in Bang Bang It's Easy Mortimer where Bob wants to go to Hollywood and you see his picture that he's sent off to Hollywood and he says, you've got biscuits around your mouth. He said, I would enjoy some biscuits. That's how he looks. He looks half dead with biscuits around his mouth. And it's just just this surreal thing, because again, they're still playing bullseye. It's still the competition. And obviously there's celebrity darts people. It's Leighton Reese, Eric Bristow and Bob Anderson. And they always get triple 20s because it's for charity and what have you. But it's still bullseye. Aren't they supposed to be ghosts as well, the dart players? But they're also Father Christmas. Yeah, it's oh, it's brain melting, and I assume because like again, you assume all game shows are filmed in like fifty blocks or fifty in a day sort of ones, and I imagine it's like, did they go right? We're filming loads of bullseye, and then this one, don't freak out, but we are gonna bring on Paul Shane as Tiny Tim, and you meant to just go, yeah, all right, yeah, 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 smart enough. It holds resonance for me certainly because I have a. A bullseye Christmas, I think anecdote's a strong word, experience. I know what's coming up. Yeah, basically, my parents in the early 90s, uh, they owned a cafe and they decided they didn't want to cook anymore quite reasonably. So booked us in a quite a fancy hotel over Christmas in Blackpool. The Viking, which is on the front, it's a, it's a really, really nice hotel. And the Christmas Day Entertainment, because they, they have like a cabaret, they have like a entertainment's room. And the Christmas Day Entertainment was Jim Bowen. And this is when Bullseye's still on telly. He's still a big name. So they must have paid a fortune for him to come. And he decided, you know, this is what I don't understand. He did a game of Bullseye, even though obviously he's a stand-up comedian and he could have just come out and done a stand-up set. 
I mean, it was a family audience, so some of it might not have gone over, but he decides to play Bullseye, so he gets people at the audience for this. And the problem is, they've been drinking since 9am, and at this point, it's about half eight. So everyone he gets out of the audience is shit-faced. And not only can they not throw a dart in, a, in order, it's oh like, God, oh God almighty. if you ask them the question, can you find your ass with both hands, they'd have failed at that. So Jim Bowen is getting increasingly more pissed off, and he's not hiding it in any way. And again, he must have been paid... A, I know he must have lived quite near to Blackpool, but even so, Christmas Day night is there... And he's just grumbling. And he was he was effing and blinding and stuff. And I was shell-shocked. I was a kid who only knew him from telly. You know, it's that thing when you see a telly person swearing or acting, you know, that kind of like... That's why Roger Melly was a, a thing, because the Viz team went backstage at local news and they saw newsreader swearing and stuff. And you do have that kind of disconnect between people from the telly, don't you? Like, maybe less now, or maybe because people are more reachable with twitter and what have you you know it's much much easier to tell people that you despise them and that sort of thing but this was still quite a novelty and it went so badly the game did not end like it just stopped well it ended it did there was no conclusion to it <laughs> it wasn't like that football match in the day to day that couldn't be stopped <laughs> oh god the idea of it's still going on especially now bowen's gone it's like and eventually the compare came on and went ladies and gentlemen like he must have been meant to be on for ages because the compare did some he was very good because you know you get a compare who can do the job but he was filling <laughs> and jim bowen left in a huff and that's that's why Bullseye and Christmas are a very complicated <laughs> topic for me. Well, Bullseye is just inherently hilarious, and not just for the cliché things about, you know, I am not a big fan of Peter Kay, but even I laughed at, you know, and then Bully goes past with the dictionary, even if he did say, what were that all about? You know, that's something that always puzzled me as a kid, but it goes beyond that. There's a sense with Bullseye that nobody involved with it at all, including Jim Bowen, at any point, could give the remotest hint of a fuck about how the programme went, how it looked on there. I mean, there was a brilliant thing about when they were repeated on Challenge. Our good friend and also fellow Looks of Familiar guest, Justin Lewis, did a thing <laughs> where I think he actually had the sound turned down. When they showed the prizes, he interpreted what they were literally on face value. <laughs> and was, there was a video hooked up to a TV showing Bullseye on it, and he put a weird episode of Bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> it was beyond you know it wasn't actually lazy it wasn't shoddy no it wasn't no. not entertaining it's just they did not care in a really good way i don't think they ever said shall we do another take of that you know no. <laughs> they just went yeah fine move on you know <laughs> and i suppose that's the thing with games you know, as, you, as i said the knockout loads in a session so yeah this is if it's still on youtube it was last time i looked the 1990 bullseye christmas special it's it's an experience and why did they always in those days go overboard with the thing about trying to do the a christmas carol stylings mm. but without anyone ever evidently having so much as seen an adaptation of it let alone <laughs> read the book i mean the one i always think of is completely forgotten now there was an itv sitcom around this time called hallelujah with thora oh, heard like, yeah a salvation army major which when you watch it now i mean you know it's kind of jolly family friendly sitcom it's actually quite dark because it's all about her trying to 
you know, secure a space for battered wives and things like that. You know, it didn't shy away from the subject matter, but there's a Christmas one where they're hosting a party for disadvantaged kids who are not, you know, sweet angels who no one's understanding. They're vile and they're horrible. You know, that's (laughs) part of the joke. Mm. But she ends up in kind of, I can't remember quite how she gets up in the fantasy sequence based, I say based on the Christmas carol, based on somebody having seen the words at Christmas carol and the quality (laughs) street tin. Why did they always do that? You could just go and watch a Christmas carol. I don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has done a Christmas carol parody. Going live did one. (laughs) A Christmas Sarah. It fits fits really well. Uh, But obviously, if you say, you know what? Shall we do another A Christmas Carol? It's like, no, no, we have Scrooged. That's plenty. That's sufficient. Stop there. And also, sadly, we didn't get Paul Shane saying, God bless us all, baby, baby. Sadly, because it was five years too early. <laughs> but, you know, they could have had the Ghost of Christmas Future told him about it. Well, he was in the future because he was on uh, Yurang, my lord, then. <laughs> so he was technically, he was, he was, he was historical <laughs> man. Historical sitcom man. <laughs> That's what he was. Paul Shane through time. <laughs> oh, the Doctor Who production. I've never wanted to see a programme more than us. <laughs> okay, well, presuming I can actually speak for the rest of this episode. <laughs> Moving on to your last choice now, which this is a programme that it didn't just mean a lot to me. It was basically, I've said about, actually, no, I'm going to save this for the back announcement. Have you ever wished there was a quick and easy way to find the filthiest shows on television? Well, on Channel 4 in the mid-80s, there was. It was called the Red Triangle. The Red Triangle symbol was intended as a warning to keep children away from films with extreme adult content. Instead, it acted as a beacon for smut-seeking adolescents like us. So here's our review of the top four most memorably bizarre Red Triangle films. Okay, that was very audibly Adam and Joe settling down for a night of watching very dubious films on Channel 4. I've said before that, you know, I can't stand it when people talk about the latest pretentious high-powered drama and say, it's like somebody saw my life and put it on TV. The one time I have thought that was about the Adam and Joe show because it was like people have been spying on me and my friends who, you know, we actually did things like the Pop Rocks and Diet Coke thing. (laughs) It really was seen up on screen. But this this that you're going to talk about now literally was my experience of watching TV growing up in a specific point of time put up on screen. Ben, what was this? This is Adam and Joe's formative years, which was to show how much it was part of my life. It was on New Year's Eve at about 10 past 10 on Channel 4. And it's 50 minutes of Adam and Joe digging through the archives, basically, because it was Channel 4's 15th anniversary. And it is a programme that could be eight hours and I would never get bored of watching it. I mean, there's the obvious stuff obviously they bring up stuff like you know mini pops which was for those who don't know it's basically inappropriately sexual to kids dressed up as things you know singing current chart which hits. was made in all innocence that people forget yeah yeah absolutely but obviously that's dragged out a lot now as like oh the past uh, but there's also stuff like the pocket money program i remember that vividly it's like sunday afternoons track tricks paul hogan's england and watch this space which nobody remembers now or if they do oh, i might remember watch this space for a reason okay 
uh, I might have been on it and that's never resurfaced and thankfully I don't think it ever will I mean that's a similar thing to what we were talking about earlier obviously Adam Buxton came in via TakeOver TV and that was another anyone could be on TV and they had this big search didn't they for brand new presenters but yeah the fact that they found stuff like that rather than you know basically on the obvious stuff and also again it's like it's through the focus of awkward young men (laughs) obviously so there is a section on naughty programs like the Red Triangle well what I loved about that is the clips they use in that are clearly taken from offers of the Red Triangle Mm. films and it must be their personal ones and I love that so much yeah I mean they get Bad Dad Adam's father Nigel Buxton to review naked yoga and stuff like that looks like it was filmed on cling films. <laughs> well, there's a brilliant line. There's a bit, obviously, like when they're going out at late night shows, they're going about sort of... Channel 4 did used to give over the airways to some very weird stuff, obviously. And I believe Joe says, there's a thin line between art and complete bollocks. <laughs> See if you can guess which is which. Oh, it's a clip of Ghost in the Machine, isn't it? The animation. Yeah. <laughs> they've got a suicidally grim drama. Vinyl Justice, their characters, where they basically just wore shoddy policeman's outfits and went to a celebrity's house to go through their record collection. It was a very slight feature, but the joy was seeing how they reacted to Adam and Joe being Adam and Joe. And you got some very interesting names on that. They do like a look at the music output of Channel 4. So obviously you get the tube on there. But you also get ESA with the notorious Gary Crowley. (laughs) Whatever You Want, which was a sort of weird magazine show that Keith Allen hosted, which was basically it was for young adults by young adults that kind of program so it'd be like when's the band coming on no we're going to talk about social housing right now they had the comic strip doing inserts in it that nobody can get hold of now yeah yeah there's hardly any of it out there to be fair so again the fact that they've not only brought stuff like that up but also this was i said 1998 well no no, 1997 it was about to be 1998 really does show how much of a passion it is for them and they do take the piss out of it but it's they very clearly love this stuff well it just encapsulates my relationship with Channel 4 was it's hard to explain to people now the thrill of being what was I eight or something and there's a new TV channel that hadn't happened since the early 60s which you know obviously seemed like a million years ago to me at that point I kind of felt like it was new I had to devour every second of it I remember watching things like Union World and For What It's Worth just because it was this new channel that's how you saw all this nonsense like Treehouse and obviously as I got older there were things like you no know, the really sharp american comedies were on there they had the best uk comedians they also had snm with my <laughs> Tony Slattery. Yeah. the things like the red triangle which you know it was quite a badge of honor if you got to see one of them and it turned out to be a searing political drama <laughs> or that one with dennis hopper as a heroin addict again it's recently this thing came up about should they privatize channel 4 and obviously no for a start but the idea of they were saying channel 4 is an independent and they still make great stuff but there's something lost there and mm. no one's ever taken that mantle up I mean partly because obviously for the first what like eight nine years they didn't have to actually get their own advertising ITV did it for them and there were many times where they just didn't have adverts so it just said next program's coming yes! up in a bit yeah with like a sort of multicolour photo of Herman the Munster. Yeah, the so yeah, so like that. And he's just like, all right, it's just three minutes of nothing. Okay. 
But I don't know why television hasn't taken that mantle. Like, no one has decided to be the place that's showing the weird. Because a lot of it can't have cost that much money. We take the piss out of live TV, for example, the, the channel live TV that was on cable in, like, the late 90s, obviously. And it was, you know, the, you know, the news buddy and all that stuff came along. And it was ridiculous and tacky and cheap. But actually, why isn't anyone doing that now? Because you'd watch it, wouldn't you? Because it's so different. Well, and also, if you make this stuff, this weird out there stuff, in a way that people can engage with, there is an audience that's evidenced by King Rocker, Stuart Lee's film about the Nightingales, the band, yeah. where it's quite weird. It's got John Taylor from Duran Duran being box popped in the middle of a market, you know, back where he used to be a punk. It's got Samira singing a Nightingale song. At the end. It goes off on all these weird tangents. There's the obsession yeah. with that King Kong statue, but it's really presented in a way that anyone can get. Yeah, yeah. That's what early Channel 4 did quite... It didn't do with things like Ghosts in the Machine and so on, but... But again, it threw enough stuff at the wall. Yeah, and if stuff is good enough, people will watch it. Yeah, unfortunately... Can I just segue into this by pointing out that what you're about to move on to, I know what this is. It's roughly equatable to the clip of star test they show in Adam and Joe's formative years, where they say to Terence Trent Darby, what's the stupidest face you can pull? And he does. And I like to think his face would have been the same watching this. Yeah. So immediately after Adam and Joe's formative years was TFI 1998. This is how I saw in New Year 1987 to 98. So I really wanted to bring this up because obviously everyone remembers. I know you didn't. And if uh, that TFI Friday really was a phenomenon when it started. And again, like a lot of people have forgotten why. And it's the same way they did the Radio One show. Like when that first started, his breakfast show, everyone listened to it because it's like, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? And he had a good team that came up with loads and loads of ideas. It was a very idea. And if it didn't work, they just went, eh, fair enough, moved on. And then fame is an issue. <laughs> Money is a bigger issue. Being a twat. <laughs> He's probably I think we can actually legally say that as well. I think he would definitely say himself, to be fair, looking back on how he was sort of around the time of TFI 1998, he was not at his peak. The first six months or so of TFI was like six o'clock, Friday tea time, before you went out. I mean, I probably wasn't going out that much anyway at the time, but it was just like appointment viewing. All the hippest people would be on there and all the best bands would be on there, or at least the bands that were kind of like pushing through. But then it continued <laughs> and it got less and I think obviously he brought it back in 2000 was it 15 2015 they brought back TFI Friday because it had gone so spectacularly wrong at the end he felt it deserved an actual close this live New Year special because obviously it was on at tea time live initially and then there was the swearing like Sean Ryder swears pretty much 20 minutes into the first episode and then the second one Ewan McGregor I think swore and then maybe the third or fourth show they decide to let Black Grape do pretty vacant I which doesn't have Chris any Evans swearing in it after that <laughs> he just looks like i'm sorry i know i know i've messed up i'm really sorry <laughs> it's just like there's no clever retort to that but it obviously continued because it was doing good ratings and you know there was the period where obviously chris evans was on the breakfast show and then he said can i have fridays off to do tfi friday and they said no very reasonably and then he became there was very rarely a week chris evans wasn't on the front cover of a tabloid well there was that weird thing where the tabloids were outraged because he went out for a drink with Gaza and Danny Baker and mm. the Pet Shop Boys were involved in some capacity. I could never understand that story. But it seemed as though they thought the moral fabric of the nation was being torn apart because some fairly nondescript famous men were having a drink somewhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, Danny Baker, to be fair, writes about the TFI era in his third autobiography, which you can actually track him going insane during that. It's fascinating. But yeah, it obviously talks about that. And there is a joke right at the start of this where Chris goes to Will. Sorry, you've got to do it once because that's all people seem to remember. Will McDonald, obviously, the producer. He said, I'm drinking for a good cause. What cause is that, Chris? Cause I'm an alcoholic, which is meant to be a joke but it's probably quite true at that point. And considering that one of the guests on it is very famously recovering real-life alcoholic Frank Skinner, you kind of wonder if he was regretting some of his decisions. It is a very of-its-time thing. Melinda Messenger's a guest on it. And I would say, again, she became another punchline sort of name, I guess, because she became famous. She was a she was like a local window advert or something, that, and then she got it picked up as a sort of... I don't think it was page three, but she was a glamour mod. As far as I remember, she was actually a lab researcher who a mate just said, will you be in an advert for our windows? Because For our windows? For our window installation firm. Not just advertising <laughs> windows. For Windows 95. And it just came from there. You know, the important thing is I remember her being quite funny on things, quite witty. Well, that's it. She comes across really well on this, actually, to be fair. Even though pretty much all Chris has got to say is, hey, you got tits. I mean, to be fair, by like a year after this, she had her own chat show, but sadly it was on Channel 5, so nobody knew. But Michael Parkinson and hated it, which gets it points in my book. Uh, I, I, she's never even drunk a duff. It's <laughs> probably, probably in his life. No, she's actually really good. But unfortunately, Chris Evans is awful on this. And it's, a, it's live, but yet they're still trying not to swear and stuff like that. And so the first feature in it is people who've made a change in 1997, which for some shows you'd be like, this is positive. For TFI Friday at the end of 1997... If you're not worried at that point, <laughs> and indeed the first person comes on, what chair did you make? I had a boob job. Ha 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 ha. Then someone comes out who's got a lot of piercings, and then someone else comes out who's had a boob job. And then someone else comes out who won gladiators, and then oh, someone else had a boob job. And then the person who comes out at the end of it has actually changed gender. It's not as bad as it could be. The person seems really happy, like comfortable in the skin, but Evans is babbling, and he's just like, I don't know what to do. I, uh, 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 he's just that should be the most painful bit of this it isn't and I'm not saying that's because Ocean Colour Scene wrote it to be fair they do go oh it's the review of 97 so here's Ocean Colour Scene playing the Riverboat song from 96 yeah and the other musical guests uh, Mark Owens on doing Clementine and Chumbawamba on at the end thankfully with one hit wonder shirts on doing tub thumping probably thinking about sacking the rage the real reason I bring this up and when I was researching this book I watched quite a few of these episodes with friends online and we watched TFI 1998 and when this happened I genuinely think it would have been better if I had axe murdered every single person in that chat because Frank Skinner comes out and I think people probably forget now sort of what Frank Skinner's sort of shtick was he was very laddy he was funny he was charming but it was he did a lot of jokes about anal sex and stuff like that you know he was very very rude I think his opening joke is about Gary Glitter for example oh he makes a joke about oh I really fancy a job at a radio station because Chris Evans has just bought Virgin Radio and then he says yeah of course you can have one he said thanks I'll have Simon Mayo's and Radio 1 but yeah Evans basically says ask him like a load of quick fire questions he says 1998 will that be the year that mum finally is allowed to call you Chris again because obviously he's called Chris Collins Frank Skinner's mother had been dead for eight years at that point and I knew that and so when he said that I'm like oh my god 
And you can tell Frank's, like, thinking about... Like, he doesn't want to throw him under the bus, but he does have to say, well, as she's been dead since 1989, no, Chris. And Evans' face drops. Like, all the colour goes from him. And what he decides to do is blame Danny Baker, saying, oh, I thought you were friends with him, off screen. And it's like, what? <laughs> you say, yeah, yeah, oh, by the way, you're dead, brother. It's like, no, this is not okay. And th- it just, oh, it is one of the most upset... I'm amazed that as a escaped all these worst TV moments from hell because it's a damn sight more upsetting than like oh and the Eterna was sat in the wrong place or whatever you know it's like it's a horrible ending well it's not even ending it's in the middle because there's like Des Lynham comes out next because obviously Des Lynham was like going through that oh his iconic phase and then they do Old Lang Syne where Evans doesn't seem to know what the words are and then a pissed up ocean colour scene come on shouting ours ours and it's just like why is this on television because you were talking about bullseye it's like it never felt even though they didn't give a fuck they still put together a thing and actually that is a television program you could drop it in any country and they would go that's a television program tfi friday was a bonfire of pissed up coked up assholes screaming at each other and generally being miserable and they went you know what that's new year's eve <laughs> that's exactly it i mean we're gonna have to pull this back to more christmasy mood in the second but that's why i never liked tfi friday and it's kind of analogous to i suppose new year parties and you know office Christmas parties and so on is that the thing that put me off from the very first episode was you know in the opening titles where it's like starring Chris Will and so on and it said the yeah. audience and had the I was like no yeah. there'll be narcissistic vain people with nothing to contribute I don't want them being treated as a star of this. That's going to lead to bad things. And it mm. did. And that's a mistake television. And, well, a lot of other entertainments have made a lot since then. Involving people too much who, yeah. you know, whether they're pleasant or not in their real lives, are probably, you know, in high spirits, probably in both senses. And TFI just started to feed that kind of idea of, you know, we're giving the audience what they want. And what they wanted often wasn't... Because my main memory is Was to be on telly. Yeah, and my main memory is things like, you know, ugly bloke, fat lookalikes. A lot of it was based on shaming other people for laughs. And if you're in front of a crowd of like, I'm just going to say it, fucking pissed up, probably coked up wankers who, you know, Mm -hmm. David Mitchell was the coke guy and does not have fond memories off them let's just say that something about that left a very nasty taste that i think is still in everyone's mouths today that's why i find it strange that it came back in sort of uh, like about five six years ago and it wasn't that in some respects like evans actually tried to fix a lot of the stuff because obviously he's not like out of his gourd every time he's not he's a family man he's settled down but he was really boring so it's like there's no that as a format is impossible and you can sort of see obviously the original idea was for jonathan ross wasn't he was off offered it originally because obviously he'd done tea time chat shows for channel four before i think if it had been him it probably would have lasted a series evans made it both must watch and utterly unwatchable and i genuinely am not sure any program has done that before or since a program that has no merit whatsoever i don't think there's a program exists now that you know has been written in the pub the day before or that day and while there should be a wonderful spontaneity about that when you're stuck up your own ass (laughs) and all you can see 
is your world. You know, it's impossible to see. There's a lot to be said for narcissistic people on television. You don't seem to have that anymore. Because Christmas TV, again, like, I've ended it on a bit of a sort of downer sort of thing. But the book is about the love of Christmas TV. It's about how it's the one day where we all get together, basically, like families and what have you. Obviously, last year we couldn't do that. And people struggled a lot more, I think, because they couldn't do the traditional family Christmas, even though, like, we all go, oh, God, stay in the family and how many bad sitcoms are about that but it is a massive thing and you know that's why the same things come up only fools and horses mark and wise and stuff like that you know became touchstones the thing that you all had in common and i still think that's a thing obviously not everyone's watching the same programs to the same level but obviously like gavin and stacy came back and that rated insane huge you know because people had been given chance to miss it and it came you know and it was it was a big deal and that was everyone was talking about that and i can't remember the last time that actually since doctor who really well just so we can go out on the you know after chris evans has kind of brought the mood down a bit all this time later but then we can go out on a bit more of a high i'm going to ask what your favorite thing not the seventy program about the christmas schedules is because i think you know mine it was that there was a phase where the bbc would show all of Michael Caine's 60s and early 70s films last thing at night in the week running up to Christmas I have such fond memories of you know you'd look in and you'd see say the wrong box and like at the bottom of the listing in italics it'd say Michael Caine appeared in Pulp on Tuesday yes they're all I have such that just seemed to me it was even before those films have really been well to give them his credit brought in brought back in by people like Chris Evans who Mm. you know recognised something in them that hadn't been maybe celebrated enough but I associate I still watch all of those you know in the same time slots now what would you pick? I mean again I think the reason I did these books in the first place is I love reading old TV magazines I love going through the Radio Times TV Times or whatever I think you get more out of it's a sort of social history thing I guess you look at it and go what? (laughs) Why did they have a programme? You know it's like the Christmas TV like why did circuses continue for so long on christmas day (laughs) it's like no they're all the same once just repeat it every year it's fine (laughs) and so going through obviously you know going through with a pen and what have you and ringing everything i just think there's something still special about the christmas day schedule we still want to know who's on we talk about it don't we like what's on and last year i remember it's like because last year the fact that anything new happened at all was amazing you know considering that hardly anything had been able to get in production obviously there was more game shows and stuff i remember people going oh no yeah well our kids have seen that already and it's like but you're still gonna watch it You know, and so I just think Christmas TV is the last bastion of the old school. Things are a bit different. Things are a bit more fun. It, you know, it loosens its tie for a little bit. The cracker hat is on at a jaunty angle, and you sit down and go, "Blankety blanks, rubbish." <laughs> <laughs> Well, just you wait until we see how excited everyone gets about Paul Shane Infinity War. So picture the scene. Paul Shane opens his windows, shouts down at Jeffrey Holland. You there, boy, what day is it? It's, it's Christmas point Day. point history Ted. all at once. He goes, Spike, fetch me the biggest turkey in the shop. And Jeffrey Holland pulls that face and then, I don't know, falls into a swimming pool. It just <laughs> works. I can't top that. I can't top that. Ben, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye, my book.
Christmas on television. A selection of all your favourite and most popular programmes, plus sale of the century. Well, let's get straight on with the rundown. And after that, the even more rundown, followed by the tired and stale, and then the pathetic and extremely tedious. Well, at least it's free. A big book of columns and features by Tim Worthington. More details at timworthington.org.